We're in our Bibles in Matthew 13. So if you want to turn back there or go there on your phone, you can. Um, my name is Pastor Dave. I'm really honored to be able to open up God's Word and look to Jesus in the Scriptures with you. Um, I, there are many of you who've been coming in and, and coming out. If, uh, if you'd come and say hi, if I haven't gotten to meet you, I'd love to meet you. Uh, I just want to know you and connect with you and uh, share life with you. But we're learning together why Jesus matters today. Why does Jesus matter today? Why are we talking about him in the 21st century? One thing that I hope we'll see today is that he gives us a vision worth enduring for, something that's worth it. I think of our church, and we're really seeking to be a welcoming community. I hope you'd help us in that, reaching out to your neighbors with you, seeing them, saying hello. But there's a funny thing that happens in this passage, and then we see a few times in Jesus' ministry where uh, he is really not too anxious about making people feel a little bit nervous and about putting up some barriers <laughs> that people actually have to press through if they want to know him. It's almost like at times he had some uh, ideas coming from an unwelcome committee, which we are not going to form. But you're going to see Jesus today uh, making people nervous. And he's not apologizing for it. So we're going to have to deal with that together. There's a moment uh, where people press through an initial uh, barrier with Jesus. There's actually a whole bunch of these throughout the Gospels. But one that, that I think really stands out is a moment where there's four friends. And they have a friend who's paralyzed. And they're desperate for this friend to have some relief. And all of a sudden... The possibility comes, they, they hear about Jesus, they see him, they see him healing, proclaiming a kingdom, a kingdom that comes with healing and with truth and hope, and they see his power. And so there's nothing that's gonna separate them from getting to him, so they're carrying their friend. If you want a really good visual of this, you could watch The Chosen, if you've ever heard of that show. Uh, it's a free app you can download, episode six, season one. And you can watch as these friends, they're, they're coming up to a crowd outside of a house where Jesus is teaching, and they can't get through the crowd. They're trying to carry a guy on a sort of pallet, and there's just no way. You could imagine if you were at a, you know, a concert or something, and you're trying to get through to the front to the stage, and you were trying to carry a big mat with a person on it. There's no way you could break through that crowd. People aren't going to let you through. It was the same for them. But this didn't stop them. <laughs> They are, they're determined. I mean, for, for us, if the parking lot's full, we would probably turn around and go home. But they knew what was inside. And so they pressed through that barrier. They climbed the roof. They, not only that, they, they, in the original language, they unroof the roof. They take the roof off. Can you imagine? If somebody so desperately wanted to see and experience Jesus, that they would take the roof off and lower someone down today. Nothing would stand between them. And Jesus, I wonder how we relate to Jesus today. In the first century, Jesus was coming to a people who had endured centuries. And, and we can't imagine this. Our, our, the country we live in is barely centuries old, right? We, we don't think in centuries. But this is a people with an ancient history, with ancient promises. And they've not seen them fulfilled. They've been living under suffering, under a series of governments that have oppressed and heavily taxed them, who have worshipped other gods, encouraged the people to worship other gods, and have they, they walk down the road and they see crosses with their people on them. 
who have given up on waiting for those promises, people who have taken a sword into their hands and said, we are going to throw off the Romans. They were called the zealots. Jesus had a disciple who was one of them who said, we've had enough. We're not gonna pray how long anymore. We're gonna say now and we're gonna take the kingdom by force with violence. And you can imagine how hard it would be for people like these to come to Jesus who is claiming to be the Messiah. He's been saying the kingdom of heaven has arrived. It's at hand, it's right here. I am he. And yet when he speaks, he's intentionally disappointing them. Saying, no, I'm not that thing that you hoped for. I'm something else. This is a different kind of kingdom. You have to wait for that. Being told to wait is hard. We want the future now. This is especially hard for those who are beleaguered, for those who have, have been oppressed. But for many of us, we haven't known that so much as we've uh, just been raised, being taught that you can have what you want. It's sort of like Don Rabbit from last week. We, we want to work as hard as we can so that we can get the thing that we want. We are ambitious. And here's the thing that Jesus encounters in his day, and it's the same in our day. Jesus encounters people for whom the kingdom of heaven is an opportunity for ambition and for advancement, even in his disciples. A quick way to get ahead, to be seen, to be promoted. When he asks his disciples, what do you want me to do for you? Remember what they said? We want to be seen at your right hand and at your left when you come in your glory. <laughs> we want a stage. We want a following. And you'll be there too, Jesus. There's an ambition in us that wants to get things now. Glory, fast and easy. But Jesus isn't giving us a vision like that. When he talks about the kingdom of heaven, he intentionally puts up a barrier to those who want these kinds of things and says, no, there's something else here. You're gonna have to press through that unfulfilled desire if you would find the true treasure. And so why does he matter today? He gives us a vision that's truly worth enduring for, the kingdom of heaven. But it's not the vision that you would have expected if you were a first century Jewish person. It's probably not necessarily the vision that you yourself would have naturally apart from the It is full of purposeful frustration and difficulty, but then <laughs> it's full of glory. So let's pray. Father, please help us to see what we can't see with our own eyes. Help us to hear today from your word. Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name, amen. So what's the vision of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus shares, this thing worth enduring? It's like a, a field where there are weeds growing up along the wheat. It's a world in which the evil and the wicked and the unrighteousness will be your neighbors and you'll have to deal with them until you die. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. This is a, a thing that actually would happen in the first century. There was actually Roman law against it. People would come and sow, uh, especially one weed called darnel, which looks a lot like wheat. 
and would grow up alongside it, and you wouldn't see what it was until it sprouted. And so, verse 26, when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. Now, the bad thing about darnel is that it was actually poisonous. It would make you sick if you ate it. So if you harvested your field that had been sown with darnel in the midst of it, if you harvested all that, it'd be useless because people are going to make poison bread that's going to make them sick. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's a world where there is goodness and there are folks who are on the side of goodness. There are folks who are not. Now remember, Jesus only speaks plainly to his disciples. The rest only hear the parables. But to his disciples, they come to him and they ask him about this. And they say, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. So he explains to them that the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Remember, that's Jesus' favorite self-title, his self-designation. He's talking about Daniel chapter 7, this prophecy from uh, the Older Testament where there's a vision of one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven who's going to reign forever and ever, and all the nations will come to him and he will judge them righteously. And he says, that's him. And he sows the good seed. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them, the devil. The harvest is representing the end of the age. The reapers, angels. So he, he lays out what each part of the parable is. And then he says what it's pointing to. Some will be gathered in. The righteous will shine like the sun. There's hope ahead. But in the meantime, you have to live with the sons of the evil one. But one day the son of man will send his angels and will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin, all lawbreakers, and throw them in the fiery furnace. It'll be a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus just talked like that, by the way. But do, we, do you see what he's saying here? There is mercy and there is justice here. Some of us are just going to be very quick to be sort of offended. And I can understand this. I was wrestling with it this week. I, I'm struggling with, with how do I communicate this kingdom to your people, Lord? There's a prolonged amount of time where folks aligned with God and those aligned with the devil will be neighbors. So if you're upset with this vision that Jesus gives us, the, the first thing that I want to ask you, particularly if you're upset about what he says about the eternal destiny of those who are opposed to the Lord and to his kingdom, he's talking about hell. What we talk about is hell, an eternal place separate from the love of God, a place of anguish. If this upsets you, I can get that visceral reaction. <laughs> Believe me, I think we all would. Want to understand that because we're human. But if, if you've ever waited for justice, have you ever waited? Some of you have, I know, because you've shared stories. You've been wronged. And no one will do anything about it. There are systems that protect the person who did wrong. And so they will not be held accountable. In fact, they may live a great life and profit off of your suffering. This stuff happens in the world. The people of the first century knew this. So many people today know this. And 
they bear so much, and they're longing for justice. The good news is that one day it will come. And the God of justice, who has waited longer than any of us, we think we've waited a long time. The Lord waits for each one of us, giving us time, time in his field, in his world, to grow up, <laughs> that we might turn to the sun. He's waiting. The Lord even waited. It says in Romans chapter 3 that God in his divine forbearance passed over former sins. He didn't finally punish sin until the cross of Jesus. The very thing Jesus came to do is where he finally punished sin. All of those sacrifices that you read about in the Old Testament, Leviticus and Numbers, all the blood of bulls and goats, it can't take away sins. They're pictures, but Jesus... It's the thing they were looking forward to. All of God's justice taken out in him if you would turn to him and he'd give you a refuge. Maybe it's not just the justice, it's not the hell that gets under your skin. Maybe that still is and I encourage you to continue to wrestle with it because it is something worth wrestling with. But maybe it's the, the simplicity <coughs> excuse me, of the picture. Notice what Jesus says here. There are those in the world who are aligned with the Son of Man, and there are those who are not. Those are the only two groups, and there is no other choice. There is no other path. Is your life, is it completely in allegiance given to the Lord, or is it against him and his ways? No other choice. It, this seems too simplistic to us. We're in the, the 21st century in America. We are a people who love choices, you know? God just doesn't put that before us here. He puts before us the reality from his divine perspective. And so if you think it's just too simplistic and it's too offensive and maybe you're ready to shut down right now, thank you for sticking it out with me. Consider for a moment the explanatory power that this offers. Think about the world that you live in. There's so much goodness. We live right next to the mountains. We've had, you know, many of us blessed with good mothers. We ourselves have had so many moments of grace in our life. Where does all this good come from? The Bible says that God made the world and he made it good, but that there's an enemy who came and tempted the first people that the Lord made in his image and turn them away from his goodness and from his path. And that it's because they let that seed take root in them and evil bore its fruit that all of this death and all of this decay and every single bit of the breaking of love that we have experienced and we ourselves have done is a result of this work of an enemy in God's world. But one day, the Lord will set it all right again. The Lord hasn't given up on his world. He's pursued. And in Jesus, the one who's standing before you, if you could imagine in the first century, standing there, out on this boat, speaking to you on the shore. Jesus came to set it all right so that you could be with him and you could shine like the sun with him in the kingdom of, their, of the Father. Now today, some of you will hear this and some of you will not. And Jesus is not anxious about that, but he's inviting you home. 
Today is the day to turn to him. So wrestle with him. Why does he matter today? He gives us a vision worth enduring for eternity with the Father. But this vision is one that will require waiting. And it will require a life lived among ordinary, unseen things. Look at verse 31. So the next parable he told after the parable of the weeds was the parable of the mustard seed and then the parable of the leaven. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in in its branches. So you get the picture? Tiny seed sowed in a garden. Jesus isn't concerned with scientific precision. He's telling a parable. There are smaller seeds that you could find. That's not the point, okay? There are bigger plants. But this becomes an unusually large garden plant. It worked as a good picture the people would know. The mustard seed slowly grows, becomes large enough for birds to nest in it. Then verse 33, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. Three measures is a lot of flour. It's bigger than what you purchase from the store. You know, we're talking about like a big barrel of flour, a lot of flour. And if you put some leaven in it and you wait, eventually it will all leaven. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It is hidden. It is unimpressive at times, probably most of the time. But then, one day, all we'll see. And what does that mean? That means that most of us will have to wait to see the glory. We may not see it today. This is really hard, especially for those who have been oppressed. Folks like the ones who Jesus was talking to. I think uh, one of the closest things to uh, our experience in our country uh, is the experience uh, of those who labored for civil rights, for example, in the 1960s. So Dr. Martin Luther King was leading a bus boycott in Montgomery. Uh, The buses were segregated. And this is unjust. And so in order to... uh, tried to overcome that system in order that they might see a day when their children could grow up and have the same rights as their neighbors across town. They protested the segregation by walking to work, walking to school, walking for all of their amenities. And many people would walk up to 10 miles a day. There was, a, there was an older woman, though, and she uh, became known as Mother Pollard, who was significant in that movement in Montgomery. And Mother Pollard was, she's an elderly woman, She walks to work four miles every day. If you could imagine, four miles, an elderly woman. And back home, and there was a a young person who came to her and said, Mother Pollard, aren't your feet tired? And she says to this young person, my feet is real tired, but my soul is rested. But there are many who are around her increasingly, and around the movement of Dr. King, who became restless with the ways that he was pursuing in their pursuit of justice. You remember Dr. King was committed to nonviolence, and what, what he himself said is that, that this was rooted in his understanding of Jesus Christ, who called us to love, even love enemies. 
And so they were committed to this loving way of protest. Many students increasingly were not committed to this, and they were struggling with it. And there was a moment in a debate on a campus that Dr. King was at, and he writes, during a vigorous debate among a group of students discussing the moral and practical soundness of nonviolence, a majority rejected the employment of force. And as the minority dwindled to, to just a single student, one student who was saying, no, I, I just can't put up with this, this long road. We're, we need to take things now by force, with violence. And when it dwindled to that single student, he finally declared, all I know is that if rabbits could throw rocks, there would be fewer hunters in the forest. And that's more than a witty remark, Dr. King writes. It's more than a witty remark to relieve the tensions of serious and even grim discussion. It expresses some of the pent-up impatience, some of the discontent, and some of the despair produced by minute corrections in the face of enormous evil. Students necessarily have conflicting reactions. It's understandable that violence presents itself as a quick, effective answer for a few. You could picture Peter with a sword in his hand, slicing off the ear of Malchus, the temple guard, as Jesus was being arrested and taken away. His Messiah, his king, his hope, being arrested. He can't wait anymore. He can't pray how long, O oh Lord, anymore. He's cutting that ear off. He's taking blood. And you can remember Jesus saying, the one who lives by the sword will die by the sword. His kingdom was coming in a different way. If you're like Peter, if you're like the student at the nonviolent coordinating committee meeting on a campus, if you are tired of waiting for the Lord to bring justice, to relieve you of suffering, to answer your prayer, if you're tired, I want to encourage you today to learn of Mother Pollard. She said, my feet is tired, my soul is rested. Remember Jesus? He said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Jesus is coming to you, offering you rest in the very midst of your weariness. 381 days they would march back and forth from work. And finally, the Supreme Court declared that that segregation was unconstitutional. And they got to see a tiny, tiny glimpse of the justice of heaven coming in this one moment. But many of us haven't walked 10 months we haven't walked even further, 381 days. We haven't walked four miles daily. But we're already ready to abandon the ways of God. What if you walked a little longer and looked to Jesus? If you would wait until you could see and know the rest that he's offering. You can have a rested soul even with tired feet. But I understand that it's hard when you're oppressed. But that, that if, you're, if you're more like me... You're a person who's grown up in privilege. You're ambitious to see God's kingdom come. You want to see what the Lord could do. There's another warning for us, another encouragement and challenge in this parable. Uh, my teacher and an author, Zach Eswine, wrote in Imperfect Pastor, of those who want large things fast 
and famously. We want large things fast and famously. Has that been you? It can certainly be pastors because the kingdom of heaven can seem like a way to be seen, a way to get promoted, a way to get in front of people. It can be a route to get ahead, to get somewhere else. And as you enter ministry, he wrote, you'll be tempted to orient your desires toward doing large things in famous ways as fast and as efficiently as you can. It can be not just ministry. It can be all of us in our lives. But take note, a crossroads awaits you. Jesus is that crossroads because almost anything in life that truly matters will require you to do small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time with him. And so some of us, some of us will want something big, will want something to happen now. And when it doesn't, we'll want to go be a part of something else that's big, something that feels like it's happening now. But the kingdom of heaven isn't like a TikTok influencer that just shoots before you and gets shared millions of times. No, the kingdom of heaven is unimpressive and buried in manure. It's hidden in a jar of flour and it slowly grows in ordinary moments. It is opposed, it's ridiculed, it's reviled. It's not celebrated and praised until the day that our Lord comes again and every eye will see, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So notice Jesus is shaping our ambitions. And he's asking us, do you delight in the kingdom or do you delight in having fast things now? If you delight in my kingdom, press into me, find rest in me. It's worth waiting for. Jesus continues to speak in parables to all of the people except for his disciples. And so the next verses, verses 34 to 35, speak about this again. I'm still learning and pressing into this. If you have questions about Jesus and why he spoke in parables, why he hid things from the wise but made them known to little children and things like this. Well, I have those same questions. But this is what it says here, verse 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. Verse 35, this was was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. He's quoting from Psalm 78. It's a psalm in which uh, the psalmist, and remember this is a song sung by God's people, and the psalmist is inviting God's people uh, to sing about God's deeds and sing what he's done for his people, this story of God's mercy to Israel, and that they would not hide these things from their children. They would share them with them. So what the best I can do with this, this is, this is my best. So take it for a grain of salt and go home and wrestle yourself if you'd like. Jesus spoke in parables in such a way that was concealed from the crowds, from those who were not ready to hear yet. But he would disclose and he would utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. He would speak these things to God's children. And he does so and explains the parable of the weeds in the next verses. That's my best shot. But he continues to speak in parables. 
and speaks of the kingdom of heaven as a treasure and as a pearl of greatest value. And here he's inviting you to just see what you have. If you have the kingdom, if you were to press through and you were to wait, even in the presence of all the wickedness of the world, if you were to wait, even in the midst of oppression, even in the midst of unanswered prayer, and to to just hold on, you would find in your hands treasure, pure, limitless, perfect, full of joy. If you had it, you would go sell all you had so that you might take hold of this treasure. But all of your friends will think that you have monopoly dollars in your hands. They won't see it. You'll hold up a pearl before them, and they're going to see like a rock from your front yard or something. What, What are you doing? But in your joy, you hold on to it. If you see this today, blessed are you for your eyes see, blessed are you for your ears hear. To those who have more will be given, Jesus says. To those who do not have even what they have will be taken from them. But if you do not see it yet, I hope you would press in until you see at least what Jesus is offering and who he is for you. Why does he matter today? He gives a vision worth enduring for in the kingdom of heaven. And this kingdom is different than the kingdom that the people of the first century would hope for. Verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of, what does it say? Fish of? Of every kind. These aren't just Jewish fish. (laughs) They're not just American fish. They're not just Republican fish or Democrat fish. They're not rich fish or poor fish alone. Old fish, new fish, red fish, blue fish, right? Fish of every nation, tribe and tongue. And all of them will be gathered and brought to shore, and it'll be at the end of the age that the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. Again, speaking of that place, that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But notice, notice, never forget, the dividing line at the end of the age is not whether they were a part of your team or your group. The dividing line is those who were good from those who were bad, those who were in Christ, credited with all of his righteousness, despite their failings. And those who were not in Christ, those who were apart from him. That's the dividing line. This is why Jesus matters today. He gives us a vision that's truly worth enduring for. And if you endure, if you press in, if you take hold of what he's offering, there will be things that happen in you. You'll begin to have new loves. This is what's spoken of in the next verses. 51, have you understood all these things, Jesus says. And you just have to imagine the disciples totally mystified, totally have no idea, probably most of them, but they're just like, yes. We know what you mean, Jesus. And he says to them, therefore, every scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. You start to love what Jesus loves when you take hold of his kingdom. You start to love the things the things of old and the things that are new. Probably 
most probably in view. He's talking about the things that were promised in the Older Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures. Jesus came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, right? But in his fulfillment, he brings this to a new age, a new era of grace. And so you can still take hold of all that goodness from the old, and you still can now even more so take hold of what is new and delight in it as the Lord has come to fulfill all that came before. But if you come to the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, we've been going through Matthew. Uh, next year, we'll, we'll take some looks in uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, Lord willing. And, and some of those places present difficulties for us, and you'll see social media meme readings of scripture that won't press through to see the grace, the treasure that's there that Jesus held to. But when we start to love Jesus, we'll start to love what he loves. So I invite you to that pursuit as well. But for those who are opposed to Jesus or who just won't see him for what he is, won't see the treasure that he's offering, they'll dishonor Jesus. That's the product of not seeing who he is. He came to his hometown. Remember, Jesus had a hometown, fully God and fully man. He had a family, a mother, an earthly father. And they're astonished at his teaching. This guy's talking about the kingdom of heaven, like he's been there or something. Where do you get this wisdom? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary? Are not his brother, brothers James and Joseph, Simon and Judas? His sisters are right here with us. You know, fully human. And, and that's all that their eyes will see. They won't see the possibility of there being hidden glory. Eternal greatness, infinite, overflowing with wisdom. They took offense at him. And Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. He didn't do mighty works there because of their unbelief. And they missed out. They didn't press through to see what was there. And so today, I just invite you to press through to Jesus. There's a group of people in the relatively early days of the church. It was a few hundred years old by this point, so older than the United States, uh, but still new compared to us. After Constantine, uh, the Roman emperor became a Christian, and uh, within a few years, it became safe and even comfortable to be a Christian. It could be, it could be a pathway to have earthly wealth, to be a priest. And in the midst of all this, there were some people that just said, this isn't the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> this, something's wrong here. And so they left civilization and they went out into the desert and they'd go into caves and they'd build monasteries in the desert. And they were called the de desert fathers and mothers. And out there in the wilderness, they sought God in poverty, rejecting everything in the world. We could talk more about that. But interestingly, people would come with a hunger and a thirst for something more than what they were experiencing in Rome something more than they were experiencing in the city of man. They wanted God. And so people would come out, and they would knock at the gate. But what would happen is they would knock, and no one would answer. And a day would go by, no one answers. What would you do? Well, some would sit, and the next day they would get up. They probably just sat or slept on, on rock they get up and they knock again. 
And there was no answer. None. Closed door. Is this our next mission strategy? I don't know. They're still knocking. Day three, they knock. This time, weary, probably starting to despair. And the people inside would fling the door open and bring them in and wash their feet and welcome them into this way of following Jesus. And the people who stayed, stayed because they knew there was something in God that was better than anything they could possibly take hold of with money, with power, with the things this world can offer. Jesus said to his disciples, ask, be asking, seek, be seeking, knock. The door will be open to you. I wonder today, do we have the patience to wait for Jesus? Do we see the heavenly treasure that's set up before us? If you don't see it yet today, I invite you to look until you see it. I can't make you see it. So look to Jesus. Beg him for a sight of it. He's worth three days. He's worth more. He's worth the wait. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have sent Jesus, your son. Lord, today, some people will hear my words, and it's just not the time. So I pray you'd have mercy on these. Other of us, we have so many cares in this world. And really waiting, really taking hold just seems too costly. But I pray that you would give us true faith and fortitude to wait and to follow you. Some of us, Lord, Lord, this world will just come up around us and, and consume us. But Lord, in the midst of it all, I pray we'd find Christ lovely and hold on and bear fruit. Lord, only you can do this. So I pray you'd give us ears to hear and eyes to see, hands to love like you love, hearts to be formed after your heart, feet to follow you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.